Machine learning frameworks like Torch and TensorFlow have made the job of a machine learning engineer much easier. But machine learning is still hard. Debugging a machine learning model is a slow, messy process. A bug in a machine learning model does not always mean a complete failure. Your model can continue to deliver usable results even in the presence of a mistaken implementation. Perhaps you made a mistake when cleaning your data, leading to an incorrectly trained model. It's a general rule in computer science that partial failures are harder to fix than complete failures. In this episode, Zed Enam describes the different dimensions on which a machine learning model can develop an error. Zed is a machine learning researcher at the Stanford AI Lab, so I also asked him about AI risk, job displacement, and academia versus industry. Zad Anam is a machine learning researcher at the Stanford AI Lab. Zad, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me, Jeff. So today we're talking about why machine learning is hard and in what ways it is hard. Yeah. But let's start more optimistically. What are the fundamental trends that have led us into such massive growth in terms of the adoption and the viability of machine learning today? So increasingly, we're seeing the value of machine learning algorithms as we've been able to able to build computers and processors that can process large amounts of data we're seeing increased value in this idea of collecting or having the computer figure out what to do from large sets of data identifying patterns in large sets of data as opposed to codifying individual rules in order to be able to do a task hmm. And there's also obviously lots of new frameworks and cloud services that make this a lot easier, and we can get into that stuff. But to get to some of your editorial that you wrote about why machine learning is hard, it's a very interesting article that I'll put in the show notes. You write about the difference between software development and machine learning. Could you outline some of the points that you make that lead you to that conclusion? So. I think fundamentally the distinction between software development and machine learning is that you have increased dimensions of complexity that you deal with. And the way I think about complexity is complexity doesn't scale linearly with every dimension. It scales in the size of like geometric volume. So with software development and with a lot of different software development, you have increased complexity because of different dimensions. But if you look at just basic software development and compare it to like basic machine learning, in software development, what I sort of see as you're writing writing a simple program, a standard simple Python program, maybe a script, maybe you're writing something simple on your computer, you have essentially an algorithmic complexity that you're dealing with and implementation complexity. And the algorithmic complexity you're dealing with is like the actual algorithm that you're writing for your data structure, the actual way you're processing your data. And the implementation complexity is the actual implementation of that algorithm in your code. And each one of these dimensions is prone to a bug. They're prone to sort of you not thinking through correctly what the right way to do this, the implementation thing. Maybe you're not using the right API calls or you're not using the right data structures for whatever library you're using. There's all kinds of little things on the algorithm side. You're not thinking through your algorithm. If I have an example of recursive algorithm that I'm just not thinking through the base call correctly. So those are like a lot of different ways that you can get them wrong. But with machine learning, even the most basic machine learning, you still have those two issues where you're still having issues with your algorithm and you're having issues with your implementation. But all of a sudden, you have two new dimensions to deal with. And these two new dimensions are the complexity of your model 
And the complexity of your model is is basically you're trying to model something about the world. You're trying to model whether you think that it's going to rain tomorrow or not. And that's based on a lot of different features and it, the prediction can be based on a lot of different things. And you also have complexity in your data. And your data complexity is this complexity of oftentimes the data that we get to be able to train our machine learning algorithms is really messy. It's not it's not in a clean format. It's not in the format in a format that we can easily sort of plug into a model and get it to sort of train and work well. You have to do a lot of pre-processing of this data and you have to do a lot of munging and these kinds of things. And so hmm. even for the most basic things, when you add these two dimensions of complexity, it becomes sort of a lot more of sort of volume in your head. The way I think about this is it's like development volume or complexity volume. And as a developer, you can only sort of fit a certain amount of volume in your head. Like I can, while I'm writing code or while I'm sort of tweaking an algorithm or sort of trying out a new research experiment, I can only deal with a certain fixed amount of volume. And so in order for me to be able to deal with that kind of volume, I'll try to completely not think about the implementation and just like take that as a given and then just think about how I'm going to sort of fix the model or I'll try to not think about the data and then fix one particular dimension and then try to try to think about the other th three dimensions but it becomes mm. it becomes a challenge of managing this volume in your head so i think you're getting at a number of things you're getting at the problem of the data munging process where you've got to clean your data and you can make a mistake in the data cleaning process and that can lead to erroneous inputs you also have this partial failure scenario where you can have a model that does a pretty good job but it's not optimal and maybe you're at a local minima and you can have all these problems that are almost subjective it's like you can have a model that partially works so machine learning is it's a hard problem because getting algorithms and models to work well is not like just standing up a web app and having some transactional service available you have to apply creativity, and experimentation, and tenacity. Machine learning is its a lot less straightforward than other types of software development. And you describe an intuition that a machine learning program has to develop. How does that intuition manifest, and why is it a prerequisite for being a machine learning developer? So you hit the nail on the head, and it's exactly, I think, for, for the reason that you described. And the reason is that in machine learning, it's hard to know when you it's you don't have quite the same binary measure of success. It's not like you've immediately succeeded. There's a lot of little signals that you need to sort of get back from your algorithm and in the process of development. And these little signals guide you in the direction of what you should be doing. You don't know quite a priori what the right model is for your data. You don't know quite a priori what the right processing is for your data. You can't sit back and sort of write down a set of rules that this is exactly what I need to do. When you're training these systems, especially with these really sort of as you get to larger scale deep learning systems, there's like certain rules of thumb, but there's always there's always something that doesn't work. And something that doesn't work is often because there's a lot of different reasons why something doesn't work. And these systems, they don't exactly tell you why this is this is not working. And so when you have a lot of different dimensions along which something doesn't work, you need to be able to develop this intuition for okay, I'm seeing this particular behavior that this model is telling me or this algorithm is telling me, and I need to tie it back into what I think of all the like three or four dimensions I'm thinking about right now, where is this problem? Hmm. Yeah, so the difficulty is that machine learning is a fundamentally hard debugging problem. This is a quote from 
your blog post, Why Machine Learning is Hard. What makes machine learning code so much harder to debug than normal code? What's so peculiar about it? So in machine learning or with machine learning code, the complexity often is when you're debugging this code, you're not just debugging a deterministic algorithm. So you're not debugging, as I earlier talked about, let's say I'm implementing a recursive algorithm. I have the actual recursive, the algorithmic part of the recursive algorithm and the implementation part. And so I know in my head this is exactly what the algorithm should do. With machine learning code, you have a particular algorithm that trains this your model. And that might be a gradient descent-based method. That might be a way of learning a decision tree, some kind of algorithm. And you also have implementation, which is the actual writing down the actual code for that particular algorithm. And so you still have that same level of complexity in those two, those two aspects. But now on top of that, there's these other dimensions of complexity, which is the model and the data that come into play with both the both the algorithm and with the with the implementation. And so when you combine all those together, it becomes much more complicated to try to debug something when things aren't going right and things aren't working perfectly. Hmm. So as you write, there is a number of different axes that a bug can manifest within in this machine learning pipeline. Describe those other axes in more detail because in you know normal programming, if I'm just building a Ruby on Rails web app, it's it's often a little more binary, you know, you've got a bug and that bug manifests in an external error and it's very clear cut that it's an error. But these axes that you describe in machine learning add a much more gradient scenario for how errors can manifest. Yeah. So in a sense, with the two additional dimensions, with sort of issues with the model and issues with the actual data, it's often combinations, combinations between an implementation issue and like a data issue that will sometimes give you huge problems. So if there's like some kind of particular characteristic about your data or your model doesn't like data in a certain format because, for example, with earlier forms of unsupervised deep learning, it was very common to pre-process the data, not just doing simple mean subtraction, these kinds of things, but people would do whitening and all these other transformations on the data in order to get it to get these actual early deep learning models to work well. There's all kinds of little bugs that can show up in that process. You're not quite whitening your data correctly. You're not your model doesn't like this form of whitening, it would prefer it would prefer this thing, or there's like some other issue with your data where, for example, with images, I was dealing with a data set a few years ago where I was trying to train particular models on these this big data set, natural images. And there were issues with the actual camera processing, the, the actual camera that was processing these natural images, the sensor that captured these images, it resulted in a format that when you whiten the data, it, it became like unstable for this uh, deep learning algorithm to train on or for this unsupervised unsupervised deep learning algorithm to train on. And so you run into these kinds of little issues where your implementation, your model, your algorithm, and your data need to come together and like just align perfectly in order for something to work perfectly. Hmm. Yeah. Although all hope is not lost because, as you say, luckily for machine learning, we also have more signals to figure out what went wrong. What do you mean by this? And... How does that signaling from the machine learning output lead to us improving our models? So with machine learning algorithms, one thing that you have 
the data and the model give you additional they give you additional signals to try to figure out where something's wrong or where you can improve things. It's not like they sort of throw you in this into these extra dimensions of complexity without giving you extra signals and extra ways to cope with that complexity. And like one of the nice things about machine learning is that you can you can have the model sort of tell you it at the end of the day it has to give it tries to give you some kind of answer. So whether that's like a classification label or regression label, it's, tr- it's trying to give you some kind of answer. And so you can just basically give it a lot of different examples and like just have it see what is the output, what is the answer that you give for these for these examples. And that is a really powerful way of trying to understand where things are going wrong. It's it's a basic way, but it's also a very powerful way where you just look at a lot of different a lot of different inputs and you see where is the system failing, where are things going wrong. That's a great place to start. And then you can then look at statistics of these kinds of, for example, what are your statistics on your training and test set in terms of are you overfitting the model? These kinds of individual statistics are really powerful. But then additionally, like these are all at the end of the train model. While the model is training, it gives you output signals in terms of its its loss function, how fast the loss function is decreasing as it plateaued. It gives you these individual, these numbers that you have to sort of keep track of in order to be able to determine what the problem is, but it has all these different outputs. So what's interesting about this conversation is that when you're saying machine learning is hard, I think machine learning is one of these really strong breakthrough innovations where it's like the iOS platform where people all of a sudden had this incredible platform to start making mobile apps and it unlocked this vast amount of innovation from developers everywhere. You could say the same thing about cloud computing, you could say the same thing about Ruby on Rails, and kind of up until I read your article, my impression was like, this is what, this machine learning is the same thing. Okay, we got Theano, we've got Torch, these things make it super easy to just get started with machine learning, and you know, you get some home runs, and then, now are you saying that that's true, you do get home runs, but you're going to hit some diminishing returns quite quickly because you're going to start to hit these debugging problems that are really going to slow down your progress once you get started? Or are you saying that even just to get started, like even just to stand up a model and have it be producing reliable, positive results, you're going to need to do some hard work? So we've had tremendous success with frameworks like Theano, Torch, and TensorFlow. And the reason is because the development community has sort of realized that the complexity of machine learning there's so much complex, there's like multiple dimensions of complexity that you have to deal with that when you take away implementation complexity, so with, with the, what is the advantage of TensorFlow, Theano, and Torch? It's that you no longer have to worry about, a few years ago, if every time you sort of coded up a neural network, you'd have to worry about the most basic computations that you were doing on your GPU. You'd be implementing the actual CUDA calls to do a matrix operation on the GPU, and you'd have to worry about the complexity. Oh man, did I implement that correctly? Do I have the right implementation for this operation? My copying memory from my host to GPU correctly? Is the memory access being done correctly? You'd be dealing with all those low-level issues alongside all the other issues that you have to deal with for machine learning. And what these amazing frameworks have done is that they've abstracted away all these complexities in a very sort of very robust, uh, strong framework. And you no longer, in a sense, for implementation, you have uh, a lot of times people are doing something new, so they have to worry about the implementation of the new aspect that they're doing. But for a lot of the most basic operations, that part of the volume of complexity has been sort of taken away because you're not worrying about that in terms of, or you're not thinking about that sort of volume of complexity 
while you're implementing your model. You're free to sort of experiment in other dimensions along the model dimension or the data dimension or exploring new algorithm dimensions. And so that's a really powerful advancement by these frameworks. That's what's made it possible for us to move, make so much rapid progress. I mm-hmm. do think that if people were still sort of writing their own CUDA kernels for training neural networks, the field would be many, many years behind what it is right now. Now, is there more low-hanging fruit in terms of making the procedure of a machine learning developer more streamlined and more error-free, or is this machine learning is hard? Is that the epitome of some wall that we've hit on the free lunches, and now it's just going to be, there is going to be a lot of in-the-trenches work? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of work that can still be done to decrease the complexity of sort of building these kind of systems. And what I think here is there's a few there's a few fundamental tensions that happen over here. One of the fundamental tensions is that there's always this sort of push for higher performance. And one of the biggest ways to get higher performance is to increase the size. Like right now, what we've been seeing for a very long time is that the most the most simplest way and the sort of the most reliable way to get better performance on an algorithm is by increasing the size of the data set. Mm-hmm. And so that increases your sort of requirements for computation, that increases the complexity of the data and increases the requirements for computation. And so because of this like increased requirements, increased push on computation, you sort of get into realms where maybe you can't do your processing on a single node anymore. You need you need multiple nodes. So if we take an example from an algorithm from the 90s, I could just brute force all the parameters of the algorithm right now, probably on, on my laptop, and not have to worry. Just have a have a simple auto script that basically checks everything, does every single possible combination, and gives me a reasonable result in a very short amount of time. But as you want to start pushing on the sort of limits of performance, you have to increasingly move towards more and more higher and higher compute. And so because of that, it naturally becomes more difficult to manage those kinds of systems because now it's no longer easy to run that kind of algorithm multiple times. Say you wanted to do a hyperparameter search for a new fancy algorithm. If that algorithm by itself is so is so large and requires so many flops for one run, it's hard to be able to tune those hyperparameters without some kind of better way than just like brute forcing everything. Hmm. Can you give me an example of some different bugs that you have encountered yourself in this this definition of a bug that you classify in machine learning, where it's like you have this broad gradient of different types of bugs that are more subjective, perhaps. Give me maybe an example of one that you've encountered and how you walked through it. Sure. I think early on, one of the interesting bugs I spent a little bit of time on was I was usually when you're looking at loss functions, when you're training your algorithm, you expect sort of this really quick decay and then sort of shallows out over time. So uh, you're sort of, the algorithm gets really, really, it gets really good pretty quickly. And then over time, you have, it's getting better, but it's getting better slowly. And it was just an interesting, interesting for me to see uh, this loss function where you'd expect it to be getting better or better over time. It was, it was periodic. So in the sense that it would, it would go up and down in a very patterned way. And in retrospect, it seems so obvious now that 
there was obviously some some kind of issue in the way I was uh, ordering the data when I was I was training this model or this particular model with an iterative algorithm. So it would take a it would take a batch a small batch of data, process that data, learn from those examples, and then take another batch. And so in retrospect, it seems pretty obvious that there was some kind of periodicity in the way I was loading up data into these models. But it was just like I had never seen a sort of a sine wave for a loss function ever before, and it was just like struck me as like really odd. But I've seen this now a few times with when I'm helping out other people debug their models or figure out what's going on, where there's an issue with you where you're you're not shuffling the data correctly and results in these periodic loss functions. And so that's an example of where the ordering of the data really matters, and you you need a randomized ordering. Otherwise, it learns patterns from the actual ordering of the data as opposed to you don't want it to be learning those patterns. You want it to be sort of getting this data randomly. Mm. What's the tooling around this? Or is it more you are just writing stuff and then you see output in a graph somehow and then you say, okay, well, now it's back to the drawing board? Well, that's what it predominantly was a few years ago. I mean, you were basically writing everything from all the code to do the operations on the GPUs, to the code to load up the data, to the code to sort of plot these loss functions and plot the statistics of your data and plot error examples and these kinds of things, which made it such an unwieldy process. And now with tools like TensorFlow and Theano, it becomes, with Theano, you have certain plugins that makes it much easier to process these kinds of errors. And so what it ends up being now with a modern framework is that you're writing basically summary statistics to a particular web view or some kind of log. And you can basically sort of look at this graphically in your browser and it'll immediately give you a signal that something, something's off. Hmm. In any case, you're describing this delayed debugging cycle that you write about, which aggravates the debugging challenge that's already difficult. Why is that debugging cycle longer because i think by debugging cycle you mean typically somebody developing a web app they just save their code refresh the page notice the next bug solve it (laughs) rinse and repeat that is not how things proceed in machine learning yeah man i'm so jealous of web developers (laughs) i i started i got back into web development maybe a few months ago and it just seems it's just so nice you just uh, you just write something in your page your browser's like painting a picture yeah it's you you see immediately and you get these you get this like immediate visual feedback you're sort of laying out stuff in css and you get this beautiful feedback like things are immediate visual feedback of what you're doing if you're doing front end stuff if you're doing back end stuff i mean there's there's a very quick cycle of the page refreshes and you immediately see what the results of your work were and that's a really powerful, I think that's a really powerful, this this kind of cycle of the work you put into seeing the immediate result of that, that's a really powerful learning cycle because in a sense, it's like a, it's like this problem of when you're trying to figure out what to do in a situation, if you get immediate feedback on what exactly, whether this was a good thing to do or not, not good thing to do, but that's a very fast way to learn about things because then you can experiment with a lot of different things and sort of play around with a lot of different knobs and get a get a good feel for like what the what works and like what is the fundamental principle that like will push this push progress forward. The thing is, what I was talking about before is that when we're pushing for higher performance, it results us in pushing the limits of computation. We have these delays in hours to train these algorithms just because we're trying to hit the sort of fundamental limits of what is the current state of the art for the performance of this algorithm, and that process takes hours, if not days, if not weeks. 
to train a train an algorithm to that level. And so what the issue becomes is that you run an experiment to test out a particular hypothesis that you have. And you have to sort of sit, sit and wait for that particular for the results of that experiment to come in for days or hours or for a long period of time before you get finally get a learning signal yourself where you can feed that back in and say, okay, when I sort of change from this this kind of gradient descent method to another gradient descent method, this is the behavior I see and this is the performance that this is the performance improvement that we get. That delayed learning cycle sort of really slows down progress in the field. It slows down progress in the field and slows down progress in development. If you were able to sort of sort of shrink that delay to sort of a much smaller delay, I think we'd see a lot, lot faster progress. In a sense, machine learning as a field, especially since the big players, a lot of industries have industrial players have come into the space. You'll notice that the field has been doing a lot of hyper, in a sense, like hyperparameter optimization with lots and lots of machine learning researchers. That there's a particular architecture. And there is a lot of people exploring like different ways they can twiddle knobs or like add small little things to the algorithm in order to improve performance on, on a benchmark data set. And in a sense, like this is like an example of it's a result of the fact that doing these kinds of computations is takes such a long time. If it were possible for a person to just sort of run all these experiments and get the results for them really quickly, then we'd not spend a year in this process where there's multiple research groups doing hyperparameter in a sense what is essentially becomes hyperparameter optimization on an algorithm mm. in order to like come out to this like solution where every, the community decides okay so this is the way that seems like a convolutional neural network should these are the parameters for a convolutional neural network that's uh, that seem to work well in practice mm. are, are we going to get there at some point are we going to shorten those debugging cycles significantly I think it, this comes back to exact same tension between computation and performance. Same thing, okay. Yeah, right. it's like whenever you try to push on performance, you're always going to require more from your computation. And until we get to this, get to this level where, I mean, where we're talking, or like, for example, if we wanted to build a human-level intelligence, you can't really shoot for a computer that has exactly the same number of operations as the brain. Because there's, even if I wanted to build a computer that had the same number of, of operations that the brain has in terms of, number of neurons, the number of action potentials and synapses between all the connections between the neurons in the brain, it would still be such a long process to iterate over all the possible ways you could build a brain that really you need to be shooting for shooting for a few orders of magnitude bigger than the brain. And you need that you need those few orders orders of magnitude faster or bigger than the brain of computation in order to be able to do this like in a sense what becomes a hyperparameter search where you're you have this ability to quickly test out different experiments at the scale of the brain and run a lot of basically run a lot of them in a reasonable amount of time and then you find it'll be in that process that you'll learn okay these, these are the models that work these are the hyperparameters that work and this is how we build a brain hmm. you did study neuroscience so how does that drive your interest in machine learning i actually got fascinated early on by the brain and it was predominantly the brain that that I was super, super fascinated in. And it's sort of, I found this like motley group of folks at my undergraduate where they're doing amazing work in at basically the intersection of neuroscience, machine learning, math, and sort of understanding the fundamental fundamental principles of computation in the brain. And that's sort of what drew me into this interdisciplinary field of like trying to understand the actual computational principles of the brain through the tools of mathematics and through, through the tools of machine learning and statistics. And increasingly, I think machine learning or progress in machine learning as a field 
progress in machine learning hardware and progress in machine learning algorithms is increasingly pushing us towards this direction where I don't think we're going to be able to exactly build a brain, but we are sort of unearthing fundamental principles about the brain that seem to right. that seem to be reflected as fundamental principles that are important for intelligence. Right. And this I totally agree with you where basically there's some set of satisfactory primitives that you need to build a what is effectively a brain, what is effectively something that is as powerful as the human brain. And we can get to the those axiomat whatever those axiomatic things are, we can get to something that is equivalent to them through just hacking on on machine learning. Yeah. Basically, like yeah. this, <laughs> the thing that we're doing right now. Yeah, that's what's so exciting right yeah. now. That's what's so, so exciting about all this is like through basically like brute force, we're just gonna get there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's gonna be great. <laughs> it's gonna be great. Yeah. It's gonna be very cool. And so, okay, this gets us into more interesting conversations. Not that machine yeah. learning debugging is uninteresting. It gets us into more speculative conversations, yeah. perhaps I should say. So there's the neural lace idea that obviously we should be covering. This idea that basically in order to, well, for whatever reason you want to make a neural lace, you know, it's like yeah. the thing, the interface between the brain and our computers that Elon Musk suggested building at yeah. in that Recode interview. And, you know, he, he was suggesting it as a response to averting AI risk basically because if you use a human brain like like human brain kind of to, as a as a springboard as if I understand his his theory correctly you use the human brain as a springboard so it's sort of like prevents or, or keeps a, keeps our interests aligned with the AI or something yeah uh, I've sort of seen these kind of comments that uh, uh, <laughs> I think people in the actual field always have a laugh have a laugh about them whenever a comment like that comes up it just feels like to me i think about this particular thing it's just like elon is an expert expert in like particular fields and he's done remarkably well and sort of has really deep insight in in these these kinds of things that he's truly excelled at but just because one person is an expert like if you look at ben carson super super highly specialized neurosurgeon doesn't necessarily mean that his sort of economic views are, are very, <laughs> I don't know, are very sophisticated or, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not exactly sure about what the, sort of combining about this fear about this AI that we have to, we have to watch our backs for, watch out. For. Oh, so you're, you're one of the anti-fearists. Yeah, uh, most definitely. I don't think that we have, a, we have to fear a future AI. But even if it's tail risk, yeah. isn't that like worth considering? <laughs> well, the really, really off probability that we have tail risk, I think we have the potential for a lot of a lot of safeguards when we're building these systems that there's ways to sort of build structures around build safeguards and structures around these kinds of systems. And much in the same way that we build structures and systems around humans in order to control their power. If you look at say our, our new president, right? We have we have a government which has a structure and system that limits the amount of stuff he can do with immigration, that limits the amount of stuff the power he has. There's same ways that developers of AI have maybe even more powers uh, of controlling these kinds of things. Yeah, and I I mean I agree with you in theory, uh-huh. but it'll be interesting to see what happens in practice because basically the narrative around this right now is you've got the Bostrom people who are like, okay, we we need to worry that if we optimize a machine learning based factory 
maybe with nano machines that are doing the construction of something to make paper clips that this machine learning based factory will optimize for making paper clips so much that it turns every human in the world into paper clips because it's just like we got to produce as many paper clips as possible at uh-huh. all costs yeah and the reason that this idea is compelling is because we're in this industrial race to have the most sophisticated, flexible machine learning. Like, even if you just look at, like, Alexa versus Google Home, you know, it's difficult to to imagine these companies restraining themselves. I mean... I think it's 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 sort of like asking the oil companies to to start talking about global warming or climate change in in more realistic terms. They're not going to do it. And you know, so right now obviously we're at a point where there's not really significant risk. We're so, you know, our our machine learning systems are still so infantile. But just looking at the at where we are today and like, you know, yeah, maybe OpenAI will do something, but it's I don't know. It's it seems like we're going to be very exposed to whatever tail risk there is. So, I think one place where we've seen this for sure is, and I think what happens is when you have economic incentives to optimize a gray area. So, if you look at Facebook and Twitter and sort of social media in 2017, they've become so effective about optimizing their reward cycles, about optimizing their uh, uh, sort of engagement engagement that they've essentially fractured like modern attention spans, right? <laughs> yeah. Like my generation, uh, generations like with the, if, if you look at the attention span for people for uh, when you're, when you're using social media, it's, it's fractured. Your day is fractured. Your sort of thinking is fractured. You're always being, <laughs> you're always being uh, interrupted. You have to sort of, you have to pull away from all that in order to actually do any kind of deep work if you're trying to sort of focus on something. And I think that's an example of where, it's an example of this process. I mean, it's not, we wouldn't necessarily call it machine learning, but in a sense, it is this iterative process where there was some economic signal and a lot of engineering effort went into sort of optimizing these applications and these websites to sort of become really, really good at sort of getting engagement and sort of pushing on like, sort of how, how do we, how do we get people to sort of pay attention to us and focus on us to this point where it, it's become a very major, major part of a person's day to now uh, sort of spend time on, on social media. But even if there's like these massive economic incentives and we see these kinds of this kind of iterative process where people's attention is being sort of pulled away from them, there's still, in a sense, like fundamental limits to what, what can be done there. There's still, in, in a sense, you have this iterative process and increasingly people are spending more and more time, but it's not like we're going to come to this like end goal where eventually we're going to be spending all our time on Facebook, all our time on social media, or somehow we're like sort of sucked into this entirely. In a sense... I think the same thing is going to happen with machine learning is that we're going to have what what the bigger issue is that we're going to have we have this iterative process right now we're increasingly realizing that a lot of the work that that's being done in the 21st century is increasingly doable by machines doable by machines plus humans and iterate we're sort of we're doing these multiple passes like we started the industrial revolution with farm work and we started automating away a lot of sort of basic repetitive work and we're, we're doing increasingly more and more we're starting automate away more knowledge-based work we're doing these multiple passes but i think that we're not necessarily going to hit this point where everything is going to be automatable zoom out you are working in the stanford ai lab and you describe your interests as being focused on high risk projects 
What is a high-risk project in your mind? So fundamentally, a high-risk project is something where <laughs> it's high-risk, but for me, it's something where you're not, there's like a small chance, I think, small chance of things working out, things sort of coming together and everything aligning together in order, in order for this. Low probability, low high upside. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the kind of project where it sounds a little crazy when you talk about it, so you don't you don't necessarily talk about it publicly, but you work on it. And when you have something to show, show for it, then you, you come back and you say, that was a crazy idea, but we, we pulled it off. Yeah. Can you give me an example? Like, do, and when you talk to the public, do you, do you like speak more modestly? You're like, yeah, I'm optimizing models. Well, I'm optimizing that, models. I'm, and... I'm doing a lot of debugging. <laughs> well, debugging. Uh, there, there was some, a recent great work out of the lab, just is on the cover of Nature this week, which was doing skin cancer detection using sort of- Oh, yes. Uh, really big convolutional neural network. And essentially what turns out is that this is work from colleagues in my lab. It turns out if you train a big neural network on 100,000 to 100,000 images of skin cancer, these are images are just collected from Google. You just scrape Google for images of skin cancer. You can match performance of these amazing Stanford dermatologists just by having a simple algorithm see lots and lots of examples. How much of that is a headline? Because how much of that... Is it like, well, there's these, you know, certain situations where, or many situations where the algorithm would not have recognized it because it's some weird edge case. Does that not happen? Are the, are the algorithms like good enough at this point where like even the edge case, because I mean, the narrative for a while was, I remember talking to Oren Etzioni from the AI lab, uh, the Paul Allen's yep. uh, AI lab, and what he said was, and we had, you know, we had a lot of conversations like, oh, you know, it's like the centaur chess, basically. You know, you've got the the human working together with the computer, and the human can identify edge cases, and the computer can identify things that the algorithm specializes in. Mm-hmm. And so, what, I guess what I'm wondering is, was the determination from the test that, yeah, we really don't need the human anymore? Well, no, that uh, that wasn't. I don't think that was a goal of the okay. uh, sort of at that. We're, and we're not. We're definitely not at that state where the human is redundant. I think fundamentally, what this kind of technology allows, the power of this kind of technology is that it allows the ability to scale sort of the quality of healthcare that we have with so the the te- ah, sort of the experiment of that was done with, against Stanford dermatologists. You of can course. now scale this across the world in communities that didn't have access to say, an amazing Stanford dermatologist, if you can match their performance, it gives you this ability to scale beyond sort of these restricted communities. Of course. Yeah. And these testing, medical testing costs are yeah. so onerous. Yeah, they're, they're very, very expensive. And it's because you have a sort of a really highly paid doctor, essentially. So there's an interesting paper where this fantastic work where they show you can train a pigeon to de- detect breast cancer with about 100% or close to 100% accuracy. <laughs> you just you just feed it. You give it. You, you have this reward cycle where you set up where you feed it when it makes the correct answer and it has to choose whether something is cancerous or not. And it's amazing. You're kidding it's, me. No, I'm that not. sounds like a joke. No, it's it's absolutely true. It's, this is an actual. It's a peer reviewed study. It's actually pretty cool. But fundamentally, what what's happening here is that you have basically basic pattern recognition happening here, and you have this really highly trained, amazing doctor who has gone through four years of medical school, has gone through residency, has done all these things. And has a much more broader skill set than just being able to look at a picture of a picture of a mole and determine whether it's cancerous or benign. But when you sort of take that sort of really broad skill set and have it do one thing, that one particular narrow thing, you can. It turns out you can even take you could take a random grad student 
and have them look at a lot of images of skin cancer and perform mm. close to uh, perform close to that level. Just because along that same analogy, you can just take a you can take it turns out you can just take a neural network and train it on a lot of images and it'll perform close to that level. Yeah. Okay. Well, so humans need to specialize more. Okay. So I got a couple more questions. The ongoing conversation I've had with some of the guests recently how we get to general AI or, or what it will look like when we get there and sort of the dichotomy between narrow AI and general AI. Cause like the narrow AI, you know, we could classify, I think Google homes is, is like the perfect example for this. Like you could, you look at Google home, like, is it narrow AI or is it general AI? And if it's not, if it certainly doesn't seem narrow, it can do tons of things for you, but it certainly doesn't seem general because general is what we've classified as human like intelligence so do you do you think this question is even interesting enough to discuss or have you thought about it at all <laughs> yeah well i guess for me the perspective on this is that is if you look at something like google google home or look at uh, amazon alexa the question is is sort of do you believe it's on a path towards uh, general intelligence and the kinds of things that are working really well in machine learning right now and ai right now are predominantly supervised learning on large-scale data sets and that's what's sort of driving a lot of the advancements that we're seeing in products with machine learning products. My personal view, and this is a view that people in the field will have, other people have opposing view, is that this sort of moving along this path is not going to lead to general intelligence. And so that's why I wouldn't call it general intelligence, because I can't imagine with sort of order of magnitudes more engineering effort, like sort of moving along this path resulting in a general intelligence. What- it's just a smartphone. It's a voice smartphone. Yeah. For me, the way I think about this is distinction between narrow AI versus general AI is not the current skill set right now, but instead, like if we were to devote orders of magnitude more work to this, would we hit diminishing returns? So supervised, yeah. supervised learning on large-scale data sets is a ex- perfect example of this, where mm-hmm. if you look at the, the performance of these kinds of algorithms, as you increase the data set size, the performance goes up. But in order for every sort of relative delta improve, improvement in performance, you need orders of magnitude more data. So initially, a small amount of data will get you really high performance. But as you sort of keep on pushing on the performance metric, you need orders and orders of magnitude more data in order to be able to get the same amounts of relative performance increases. And it's because of these diminishing returns that you hit this you hit this like sort of plateau where these systems aren't able to generalize in a way that you'd expect a general intelligence to. Now, so that makes sense to me for specific verticals like voice recognition or recommending a restaurant or whatever. But what I wonder is, once we get to the point where it's ensembling these things really well, maybe there's some creative ensembling it can do where you sort of get these more spontaneously generated step changes in how in how it gets closer to general AI. Does that sound not plausible? Or well. Even with ensembling, I think you'll see the same sort of behavior or this trend where... I'm sorry. Well, maybe perhaps I used the the word ensembling wrong. What I meant was like the synergies between the different high-level models that it's building. Like, oh, it can do restaurant recommendations really well, and then it uses that with the improved voice recognition, and like maybe that gets us a step change or... Yeah. So the trend that you're sort of pointing out, I think it's absolutely... This is key, and this is what's going to unlock a lot of really amazing products, yeah. a lot of really amazing experiences of machine learning, where yeah. to someone who's just using the system as a user, it might be indistinguishable from an actual person on the other end. Like for the average user who's using a kind of system with, as you say, ensembles or multiple components, it, and it covers pretty much all the head cases, all the major cases and a few of the tail cases for like, this is how a person might use the system. It'll be pretty much indistinguishable from a human. But any kind of 
adversary or any kind of person who's like prodding the system to like try to determine, okay, is this really human or is this not human? If you talk to a human, it's easy to be adversarial and for me to determine whether a system is a, is a computer or a human. You can move in directions where you increasingly find that because the sort of space that a computer is expected to know is so large because of how broadly competent humans are, that it's really easy in this really, really, really large space to find a place where a system will fail. And so it's like these kinds of individual components, these kinds of ensembles might combine together to blanket a space, blanket most of the dimensions of, of intelligence that we have for humans. But it's always really easy to find one particular area as a human to say like, oh, okay, uh, let me just start, try to figure out if I, if I talk about this or word it this particular way, this is completely not the way a human would respond. And I think this is a fundamental limitation of the current ways that we're training these kinds of systems. So basically, this is a very long description for what I basically say is that these kinds of systems are really, really fantastic for most of the cases that, that you interact with them. But the reason they're not a general intelligence is because they don't cover all those really, really, really rare edge cases that uh, an adversary might sort of try to poke and prod in order to determine whether a system is a general intelligence or just like a, a really big algorithm trained on a large data set. Well, of course, what's weird is that it's going to cover a superset. Well, not a superset. It's going to cover, I forget what the set terminology is, but it's going to cover things that a human could not do, but it's still going to be able to be incapable of doing certain things that a human can do, and which is maybe why Kurzweil believes it's you know it's not going to be exactly resembling a human, but it's going to have human-like creativity. And anyway, don't want to go down the Kurzweil <laughs> route. So just to close off, assuming you've got a little more time to go over, industry versus academia is quite an interesting question these days with every AI lab being under threat of being acquired by Uber or Google or something. How is research in industry versus academia these days? Are there questions that industry cannot ask because it is too basically scientific that academia still is better at asking questions about? Or are these basically one and the same, where the industries have gotten so good at long-term thinking that they're asking good enough questions that they might as well be academic? Yeah. One thing where there is within academia, this people who aren't working on really long-term projects, which is, I think, fundamentally a mistake. I think Google and Facebook and these big, big industrial labs are really well-suited because of the kind of resources they have to explore explore more medium-term, large-scale, really pushing the limits of commutation. I think we have a few bets for like how to build a general intelligence, but I don't think we necessarily like sort of we know the path that, that will lead to a general intelligence. We have a few bets like, okay, if we move along this direction, we'll, we'll sort of build towards a general intelligence. Or if we move along this direction, we have the ability to build a general intelligence. But those are, in a sense, fundamental questions. They're like fundamental, really long-term questions for us to be able to answer that will lead to a general intelligence. That's where academia shines. I think right now there's a lot of funding to be able to pursue that kind of that kind of stuff within industry. And so you see a lot of labs thinking along those directions. There's a lot of really, really fantastic work being done there. And I think a lot of really great work because the resources give you an ability to sort of run these experiments on a scale that that isn't really possible in academia. But there are a lot of fundamental questions and a lot of, in a sense, like experimentation and research is you have to be open to a lot of crazy ideas and you have to explore a lot of crazy ideas. And fundamentally, as soon as you have the resources at the level of Facebook or Google in order to, you have sort of a less of a ability to really tackle a crazy idea because you need to be able to have some kind of 
some kind of progress. You, you have all these resources and you're sort of pushing forward on something. You become more blind to those really, really out of the box, really crazy ideas than you are when you have sort of more constrained resources. Mm. And I think one other thing that's going to happen is that we see a lot, we're in this like, sort of peak cycle of funding for these kinds of industrial labs. What <laughs> my concern is, is that sort of this funding can be, if you look at it 20 years now, there will be some really visionary, long thinking people, long thinking CEOs still funding these kind of labs. But the amount of funding that's going to that's gonna happen for industrial AI labs is going to go down. You have a lot of sort of Me Too funding with kind of industrial AI labs where a lot of people sort of are funding these kinds of things because everyone else is funding them. But in order for like sustained long-term development, I don't think that we're going to necessarily like see this kind of really, really long-term investment from industrial labs. As soon as like the sort of economic incentive goes away, there's only going to be a few really stars of excellence in terms of industrial AI labs. Hmm. But I think a lot of it will go down. Hmm. I hope not, because this is like the ultimate prize. And it's essentially like, I mean, I have trouble fathoming that because it's like, until we get to general AI, like it certainly seems right now, like we have all the tools that we need to build general AI or we're getting there. Like we've, we, like it is, it is within sight. It's crazy. And if you are the company that wins that prize, congratulations, you like, you, you know, you, that's the, that's the last invention we need. And so, so you're pretty well suited. Anyway, yeah, interesting times. Okay, well, Zed, thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking to you. I really enjoyed your article, and I look forward to see I think it was your only blog post. I look forward to seeing more blog posts from you. Yeah, you'll see one very soon. Okay, great. Well, well, Zed, it's been a pleasure. All right, it was great. <laughs>